0: Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started paddling the blue. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. I appreciate you joining me today. Today's episode is another fun one. This time we had a chance to talk to Andrea Nepper, And uh, Andrea did a fantastic trip where she paddled the entire west coast of the United States. And this interview was so much fun uh, between Andrea and I. Well, it went a lot longer than I expected, so we're actually going to end up taking this interview, and we're going to split it into two, so you'll have a part one and a part two for this interview, so we can keep them at a reasonable length for you. So sit back, enjoy the conversation that I had with Andrea Nepper about her West Coast adventure. Hi, Andrea. Thank you for joining us.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Great.
0: So we're here to talk a little bit about your paddling the West Coast uh, trip, your expedition that you did yeah. in 2019. So this should be a fun talk.
1: I think so. I love talking
0: about it. Excellent. I know you've got lots of, lots of plans and places to talk about it as well. So we'll, we'll hear about those as well. Um, tell us a little bit about you to start.
1: So I love water when i was a kid anytime we went anywhere outdoors my mom knew she had to pack a, a set of spare clothes because um if there was any water anywhere i was i was going to be in it and i was going to end up wet and i was going to need a set of dry clothes um so i've always loved the water my my family's all from the west coast um and some of my really by, some of my very earliest memories are of playing on the on the beaches on the oregon coast um and it's been one of my favorite places for my life, all of my life, it's been one of my favorite places. But I didn't start paddling until I was a teenager, um, and we lived in Colorado at at the time, and we started kayaking in the canyons of, or not kayaking, canoeing in the canyons of Western Colorado and into Utah, because my 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 parents, my mom decided we were. We were going to go rafting for a vacation and then figured out that it was too expensive. We couldn't buy a raft and she didn't want to go on, a, on a, a guided trip. She wanted us to go. So she figured out she could buy a canoe instead or rent a canoe. And she read a book about canoeing and we packed stuff into a canoe and took like a, I don't know, I think the first trip was going to be like a week long trip down the canyons. And we were in completely the wrong boat because what my mom read in that book was that when you're on whitewater, you want to be able to move your bat, your boat, faster than the water. And so she very carefully did the research and bought a used canoe that was a really, really nice, fast canoe. So it's a an 18 foot Kevlar tandem, uh, Jensen Winona Jensen, which would be great for racing it'd be great for boundary waters and portaging on the boundary waters but it's not the right thing for whitewater Uh, but we took that canoe down whitewater for years and that is the canoe now that that I own (laughs) um so we did it all wrong we did it completely wrong but but we loved it and on one of those trips I don't remember which one it was, if we were on the Colorado or the, the green, but I saw somebody go by in a kayak and I literally like I pointed at it with my finger and followed it down the river and I said, I want to do that. And then I, I was 15, 16 at the time. And when I was 22 and then living in the Midwest at Devils Lake in Wisconsin, um, I ran into some people who had there were three of them, and they had two kayaks on Devil's Lake, and they weren't paddling them. They were just hanging out on the shore, and I, and I watched them, and I watched them, and I watched them, and I watched them, and they weren't doing anything with the boats. They were just on the shore, and I finally, my 22-year-old self, I walked up to them, and I was like, Hi, um, excuse me. Um, you don't know me, but um, could I maybe try your kayaks? <laughs> And they, and they let me try them and they got, you know, they, they adjusted the foot pegs for me and they were whitewater boats and they put me in a boat and they're like, now you're going to go in circles. And I thought, I know how to paddle a canoe. I'm going to go in a straight line. And I got in the boat and promptly went in circles and stayed in it long enough to go in an oval instead of a circle.
0: And you were, you were (laughs) hooked from there.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's how I got paddling. And then I, I started, I started teaching because through a long roundabout way, I, I got hooked up with an outfitter and I I couldn't afford to take courses and I couldn't afford to rent gear and I certainly couldn't afford to buy gear at the time but if I worked for them I could I, I could be on courses and I could use the gear and so that outfitter um had three different levels of of staff they had lead staff they had um, assistants and they had aides and aides were unpaid and didn't really know anything. And we just carried boats and got to be on the water and learn. And that's how I started out. And it was great. <laughs> and that's, that's... Ironically, when I first started paddling, it, I'm a little bit of a perfect perfectionist. And one of the things I loved about kayaking when I started kayaking is that it was the thing that I could just suck at. I didn't have to be good at it at all. And it was one of the things I loved about that. And 15 years after that, more than 15 years after that, I got interested in it and I got interested in really learning how to do it well. And in 2015, I earned my British canoeing five-star award. And the year after that, I earned the British canoeing coach level three award. And there are awards that, that not very many people in this country have. And I've I really enjoy the learning how to be in that water that I love and being able to to effectively teach other people how to be in that water and introduce people to it safely and and in a way that's fun and in a way that they can become independent and and have that that same thing so it's a far cry from paddling the wrong canoe on the canyons in western Colorado. <laughs>
0: Well although uh, you say that it was it was wrong um I would say that it's probably not textbook but I don't know if uh, I don't know if anybody did anything wrong because your mom certainly got a 15-year-old you hooked on paddling.
1: She did. She she absolutely did and she did that right. <laughs> absolutely.
0: That's that's fantastic. Yeah. So that took you uh so you went from the canyons of Colorado and the Winona canoe to Devils Lake and uh, paddling a whitewater boat to your uh, BC 5-star award to your coach level 3 and uh through coaching progressions and then that takes you to the West Coast. So tell us a little bit about the uh, the West Coast trip that you did in 2019.
1: Yeah, so it's a trip I've wanted to do for 15 years. Because, as I said, my family is, is all from Oregon, and the, 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 the Oregon coast is, is a place that I love, and those are really my home waters. But my paddling home waters are the Midwest, because I've lived my entire adult life in the Midwest, and the Great Lakes are my paddling home waters. But I've wanted to take that, that trip for, for 15 years, and it's, it's sort of funny because I didn't set out to do a big expedition. I set out to paddle this coastline that I really love and I wanted to be able to see the whole coastline of the West Coast because I'm also the girl, like I'm I'm the girl who likes to drive across Nebraska <laughs> because I like to watch it change and I like road trips. I love long road trips and I, I love trips that, that I power and that I get to watch the scenery change and to get to do that for the entirety of the West Coast, I had wanted to do that for for. 15 years and I wanted to be able to paddle sort of the home waters of my heart if that makes sense Absolutely. Um, so it was a long time coming because when I first started wanting to do this paddle I didn't have the skills or the knowledge to to be able to do it and fortunately I did know that I didn't have the skills or the knowledge to be able to do it and eventually sort of forgot about the fact that I wanted to do that and then (laughs) actually it was when I passed my five star that I remembered, yeah, you know what, I, I really wanted to do that. And I still want to do that and decided that I wanted to do it by 2020.
0: All um, right. And that
1: gave me five years for planning. So it is, I mean, it was pretty much the entirety of the West Coast of this country. I put in at Nia Bay, which is on the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And the Strait of Juan de Fuca is the piece of water between Canada and the United States. And you probably know this, but our listeners might not all all know it, but people usually know where the San Juan Islands are. And if you follow that piece of water where the San Juans are in Anacortes and Orcas Island and follow that to the ocean, that piece of water is what empties out into the Pacific Ocean. And it goes around Cape Flattery, which is the northwestern tip of the state of Washington. So Nia Bay is the last protected landing in the Strait of Juan de Fuca before you go out and around Cape Flattery onto the outer coast. And that's where I started. And I started there. um, I I put in on June 12th. And my original plan was that I was going to paddle to the border beach, which is just south of San Diego. um, And it's basically right on the the border between the United States and Mexico. And I actually ended up landing in San Diego Bay because I have a friend who paddled the California coast, six years ago and and even then when he and he landed on that that border beach um and it was challenging to find a place where people could come pick him up and pick up his boat and his gear and he also on the water there were armed guards in humvees and on land who were following his progress and that was six years ago and the the political situation on the border is a little bit different right now um and my mom was going to come meet me and she uses a wheelchair and there was no way she was going to be able to get somewhere where she could see me land. And her partner uses a walker and there was no way she was going to be able to get there. And, you know, my my husband was coming and, and friends were coming and I didn't want to, I don't know, make a potential scene. <laughs> yeah. So so I landed in San Diego Bay instead. So it was sort of one paddling day short of the border. And really beautiful. You could come around Point Loma into San Diego Bay, and it's it's really quite stunning. And it's at that that last little piece of it, that last 20 miles, is a paddle that I've, I've done. And so it was also familiar, and that was pretty cool. So I landed in San Diego Bay, and I was sort of lucky on the day that I landed, uh, I actually could see the Coronados, the Coronado Islands, which are in Mexico, yeah. um, and I, I could see them. So I didn't go to the border with Mexico, but I could see Canada when I started and I could see Mexico when I finished. So I put in at Nia Bay up there in the north on June 12th and I pulled out in San Diego Bay on September 14th, 1,508 miles later.
0: Wow. And And what's the day count for that then?
1: So, you know, I, I did account and I think it was a hundred days, but when I go back and look at June twelfth to September fourteenth, that seems more like ninety five ish days. Okay. So I don't know for certain. All truthfully. Right. Still a pretty uh, but it was somewhere between ninety five and a hundred days.
0: Still an amazing accomplishment. And I think even uh when you say landing in San Diego Bay, I don't think anybody's gonna discredit you. Um you still did you had a heck of a paddle and three months on the water so that's that's pretty cool
1: yeah and you know i'm 100 percent okay with landing in san diego bay and not the not the border beach because it wasn't about trying to prove something it wasn't about i have to do every single mile of this it was about i want to see this coast this coast i want to see this coastline and i want to take this trip and it was about having the trip that i wanted to take and so
0: (laughs) and be able to end it with the family and friends around you that's that's special
1: Absolutely. It was it was quite special actually.
0: What was it about this trip, you know, that got you fired up? What what was it that you finally made you to say, "All right, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to start the planning process and here's what I really want to see."
1: Gosh, that feels like several different questions. I mean, there was the part that it's just something I've wanted to do for a really long time, you know. It was full-on bucket list. <laughs> You know, I've, I've, I've wanted to paddle the, the west coast of this country for 15 years. I have basically like four things on my bucket list. I want to do that. I used to want to um, ride my bike across the country, um, but I had spine surgery, mm. a couple spine surgeries 10 years ago, and I wasn't going to be able to come back and do all the things I wanted to do. And so I had to choose one and paddling was what I chose, which means that I gave up the other two bucket lists, which were riding my bike across the country and climbing Denali Paddling the West Coast. I'd wanted to do that for such a long time. And that one of those three things is the one that was personal. Like when I was paddling along Oregon, I was paddling outside of of beaches that I played on when I was a kid and I was like oh there's there's Nahalem Bay that we you know I I, I camped there with my dad and his family every summer for I don't know 10 summers and and we built forts on that beach and oh look that's Hug Point and that's where we would go out around the little bluff to to get to the beach at low tide because at high tide you couldn't get there and and we would hang out all day and then walk back out at low tide and hey there's tillamook bay and you know we used to drive around tillamook bay on our way to the coast on our way to vacations and here i am on the water and crossing it takes 20 minutes (laughs) because you don't have to go around the whole bay but it was all and it was like oh hey there's haystack rock on cannon beach and so many photos of that and i've been there and but it's haystack rock from the other side (laughs) you know so lots of, of personal memories and childhood memories and you know when i go visit my family in oregon i usually try to find a day that i can borrow a car and and drive to the coast because this is it's the it's the place that I think is the most beautiful in the world so this is the one that really had meaning for me it, what made me actually say yeah I want to do this was when I I realized you know when I when I first started talking about wanting to do it I, I didn't have the skills or the knowledge to do it it's a really committing coastline and at some point in the last five years I realized, I was at a point where I did have the knowledge and the skills to do it and that there's so much more to learn. There's always so much more to learn. And the more that I had to learn wasn't going to make me any more able to do this trip. And so if I wanted to do it, I should go ahead and do it. Combine that with the fact that I had spine surgery 10 years ago and fusion um, Mm -hmm. at, at two levels. So there's sort of three discs that are fused together. And the doctors told me that I was quite like I'm quite likely to have issues with the adjacent disc in 10 to 20 years from from the surgery. And I'm right at 10. I'm right at 10 years. The day that I got on the water it was actually 12, 10 years and eight days <laughs> after that surgery. And so I had the knowledge and the skills, and so much more to learn. But I wasn't going to get better prepared for this trip. And so at that point, time was going to be working against me instead of working for me, which it had been doing up to that point.
0: I'll take it while the opportunity's there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So this, um, is a,
0: this trip sounds like it was a, about creating memories and, and reliving memories and then creating experiences that you wouldn't have had otherwise.
1: Well, I definitely wouldn't have had those experiences otherwise. And and one of the things I really, really enjoyed about this trip was getting to watch the coastline change. Cause, you know, Northern Washington and Southern California do not look the same.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: they're they're quite different from each other. And I got to watch that change happen on a daily basis, like just at a human human powered speed and and i also you know i get to take all these different beaches and for me now they're strung together in one piece of coastland of coast so my mom and i were talking you know i've mentioned my family lives in oregon Mm -hmm. um, and one of the unexpected parts of this trip that i didn't expect when i started planning it was that sometimes people picked me up off the beach and took me in california some paddlers picked me up and they would took me to their home and let me sleep in a bed and do laundry and eat large amounts of fatty foods. (laughs) Um, And through Oregon, three different times, my mom and her partner got an Airbnb along the coast and picked me up and um, same thing. And we, when my mom figured out where she was going to get those Airbnbs, it was based on how long I thought my expedition was going to take. But I ended up about, I don't know, five, six, seven days ahead of that at the beginning. And so the very first one, she had to drive 80 miles south to pick me up <laughs> and, and take me back to where I'd been a week before. Um, so that was sort of funny. So we had lots of time to talk. And as we were talking about the trip and the places, my mom is the one who said this, you know, we would talk about beaches, but then I would also talk about the, the headlands and for me, they were all strung together in one whole. Um, and for her, they were individual beaches and individual headlands. And she said, you know, for her, it was sort of like beads. And that for me, they were beads on a necklace. And and I got a real sense of how all those pieces fit together. And my mom has lived in Oregon for, I don't know, probably 60 of her 72 years, <laughs> And I know have a better sense of how all of those pieces of the coastline fit together than she does because there's lots of chunks of it that you don't see if you're not on the water. And so, you know, the only other people seeing what I got to see are fishermen. And there's lots of fishermen, right? But, but most people, if you just go to the coast, there's so much of it that I got to see that, that most people don't get to see.
0: Yeah, you had 1,500 miles of exposure to that coast, whereas, like you mentioned, a fisherman might just get to see their, their small part of the coast that they roam on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and meant- so it really is just sort of this... this it, it sort of it ended up being this sense of 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 being in the world and getting a visceral sense of the reality of our planet, <laughs> which is a funny thing to say. I could tell that I had moved south because I started the trip right before the summer solstice in a pretty far north latitude and it was light well before five o'clock in the morning and it was light well past 10 o'clock at night whereas at the end of the trip it was close to the equinox and I had come farther south where you know it there's not as much of an extreme in hours of daylight and it was it wasn't light yet at six thirty in the morning, um and the sun was setting before eight o'clock in the evening, and so the the hours of daylight changed a lot, and it's like I could watch my progress through time, but I could also track my progress through space because that was changing if that makes sense that does that's really um, interesting yeah it it was it was fascinating for me and you know i paddled around of course right i paddled around the westernmost point of the lower 48 <laughs> um and i i uh, it was in in oregon in in southern oregon and not all that dramatic i would have expected it to be a big basalt headland like a lot of the the headlands in in oregon and instead it was this sandstone headland that was much lower than most of the basalt headlands in that part of the coast Um, and it was quite different than I would have expected and much less dramatic than I thought but also interesting because up to that point I'd been going southwest and then after that I was going generally southeast and it's just you know you get a a sense of the shape of our the west side of our country.
0: (laughs) So you mentioned uh, changes along the coast so tell us about some of those changes that surprised you as you were going through the trip.
1: So I didn't I didn't realize I was going to end up thinking about this trip in sort of a, a series of types of coastland or coastline. So, you know, northern Washington was sea stacks and cliffs, small, small sandy beaches. And then the very southernmost part of Washington is when you start getting into long sweeps of sandy beaches punctuated by big bays. But then you get into Oregon and you, you you keep those long sandy beaches punctuated by big bays, but you also have these, and you still have sea stacks, um, but there's actually, the sea stacks are bigger and fewer, um, and they're taller, and 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 you get these massive headlands. So the headlands are bigger and fewer between, just like the sea stacks are, and then the beaches are these longer sweeping beaches. And then you get to sort of central and southern Oregon and you That's when you start getting into sand dunes and you have these long stretches of sand dunes. Southern Oregon, you start, things start getting a little bit more arid. And that got me thinking, well, what, where does the Pacific Northwest end? (laughs) And that was sort of interesting because in central California in Fort Bragg, a couple of the people I stayed with talked about that and they said, hey, you're just, you're just before... The Pacific Northwest officially ends because there's no more of a certain type of tree, and I don't think it was the Doug firs, but but it might have been. But you know, also going farther farther south into California, you, you don't have the massive basalt headlands anymore. You start getting into much more sandstone, um, and the the cliffs are shorter. Even when they're still just as dramatic, they tend to be not as tall, and. And um, it, it stuck out for me, the first eucalyptus, <laughs> because I was just like, oh, right, I'm not in northern Washington anymore. <laughs> I have definitely traveled on this country when I ran into eucalyptus trees. And then, you know, sort of central California, you still have those long sweeping beaches, but they're they're much steeper. So the surf zone is is shorter and there's fewer lines of surf. But oh, they're big dumpy waves <laughs> on a steep <laughs> beach. Um, and you have sort of lagoons more than bays, and they're a different shape than the bays in Oregon. Like, I, I think Humboldt Bay used to be one of those lagoons. Like, they're basically closed off from the ocean by, by a narrow sand spit, and then sometimes it gets topped or it gets broken open. But Humboldt Bay, they they dug a channel and made it permanent. But the shape of that bay is different than the shape of the bay's in in Oregon and you start getting down into you know sort of southern California and there's a there's a bite when you round point conception two days before Santa Barbara but there's a stretch there where it was just like oh right I'm traveling east now (laughs) I am not (laughs) traveling south and you travel east until um, right before LA there's a big section where the coast faces south um, and that's where the Channel Islands are. Yeah, and then by the time you get to Southern California, there there are some cliffs, but they're not all that dramatic. They're still sandstone. Um, but you also, once you get around Point Conception is when you're officially in Southern California, and the water gets warmer, and the swell gets smaller, and the wind comes down, and the, the beaches get more friendly and and the air temperature certainly goes up also and so it's just it's this really gradual change but you get you know you land in san diego bay and point loma obviously is a you know it's it's cliffs and it's dramatic but those those cliffs and sunset cliffs right before that are really far cry from the cliffs in northern washington and it all happens so gradually but there's these these distinct parts of of the geology and of the the coastline, if if that makes any sense,
0: that's that's pretty cool. It
1: and, was really cool to get to watch it and 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 again to watch it at human powered speed.
0: Right, And really be able to soak it in and and get a feel for what you're experiencing as opposed to going by it at sixty five miles an hour.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So you mentioned people and uh, how people had picked you up along the way. Tell us about some of the people stories that you experienced
1: during the trip. Yeah, so so um. That's one of my favorite parts of the trip was the people that I met. Um, and it was also one of the most surprising parts of the trip. And it happened in a variety of ways. So um, I thought that this was going to be a really remote trip. And I knew that my mom and her partner had Airbnbs at three places along the Oregon coast. And so I was like, okay, I'm, you know, that's going to be great. And I knew that I was going to need to figure out how to stay with people in the very southern part of California, because unless you're Freya Hoffmeister, like you don't camp through L.A. (laughs) (laughs) So so I knew I was going to have to kind of get that figured out. And then not long before I left, I I mentioned I have a a friend who paddled the southern coast or not the southern coast. Sorry, I I have a friend who paddled the California coast. And I'd only met him once. I met him in 2013, maybe in San Francisco Bay at the Golden Gate Symposium. Uh, Matt Crazon, and he realized what I was doing, and he sent me a note, and he said, "I didn't realize you were doing this, but wow, this is cool that you're doing it. And may I offer my help or my support?" Um, and he offered three very concrete things, and I don't remember one of them, <laughs> <laughs> but the other two were that he offered. He said, "Can I feed you weather information? <laughs> because you know, anywhere where I didn't have." internet or cell phone coverage. I wasn't going to be able to get my apps. I wasn't going to be able to be online. All I would have for weather is the radio, VHF. And there were going to be times when I didn't have that either. So, but I had, you know, I had a Garmin and so a means of communication. And so he offered to just give me better weather information. And then the other thing and that proved invaluable. And the other thing he offered is he said, Hey, are you okay with the idea of people picking you up on the beach and giving you a place to stay. Um, And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm okay with that. (laughs) I don't have, I did not have any rules about this expedition about I have to be camping on the beach every single night. And so he he arranged it. I I didn't have to arrange it. Um, And so it was really cool. I met, you know, various paddlers, mostly through his network um, or the network of people in his network. So I knew I was going to have My mom and her partner through Oregon... And the rest of my family also is in Oregon. And so right after I crossed the Columbia River, I, I holed up for two nights in a completely illegal place to camp <laughs> in the day use area of the park um, because there were south winds that I just didn't want to paddle against for, for two days. And my dad came and spent a day with me. And at one of the Airbnbs with my mom, I you know had an extra rest, rest day. And my aunt and uncle came out and, and saw me. And I knew I was going to be trying to kind of meet up with my family, but didn't quite know how it was going to happen. But I before I ever got to Oregon, I, I met people, most beaches, there were people there. So you know, there was the, uh, the, you know, Olympic National Park and, and backpackers. And so the, the people I met changed along with the geography. And so you know, there's those, those cliffs and the small beaches, and it's Olympic National Park, and there's backpackers there. And it was you know, kind of funny. I walked. I was on the. I camped on the beach, but I walked up into the campground. And you know, at night, all the you know small little compact tents and the the whisper lights all set up, but you know tucked away for the night. And and you know everybody going to bed early. And and then when I got to the the big bays in Southern Washington, you know, I there was one place where I actually camped in a tiny, tiny, tiny little campground. That had some RVs and some tent sites and hung out with this group of five guys in their 20s. And it was the weekend right before the 4th of July, and they were drinking too much and smoking too much pot and setting off too many fireworks, half of which were illegal. (laughs) It's a a far cry from the backpackers in Olympic National Park. And, And then the next big bay I was or the one before that I waited for several days because my compass broke and I had to order a new one and, and wait for it to be delivered. And it was, you know, it was Americana. It was, a, again, an RV park and people were there on their summer vacations and, you know, digging giant, just like water holes. But I mean, there was this kid who must have been like, 10 and just dug this massive hole with a big old shovel that was giant and way far away from the from the water but he was trying to dig down to water and then where the the people who who live there and and go for a walk on the beach every night and it's their home beach and you know there was there was the woman who i don't know her name but she must have been in her 80s and her her dog was a black and a black lab named willow and and willow was the dog of her life. (laughs) You know, there was another place where when I was waiting in Willapa Bay for a a good day for crossing the Columbia. So I was there a few nights also. And there's this guy who it's clearly his home beach. And same thing, he went walking with his dog on the beach every evening. uh, But he would come out with a, a golf club and like, Five, six, seven golf balls, and he would hit the balls, and this dog would chase the balls and love the balls. And then would find it and would, would stop and didn't pick it up, didn't take it back. This dog wasn't about fetching, it, it was just about chasing these golf balls. And but it's just like I oh, had these this little piece of people's lives. And when I was at the Columbia, there was a woman, there were two women who who were walking, and I was trying to be kind of under the radar, and they're looking back at me, and I'm trying to not make eye contact because i don't really want to answer a bunch of questions but they're looking and they're looking and finally they said is that your kayak on the beach i said yeah and so then they wanted to know what i was doing and they started asking more questions and you know i was there for a couple days because of the south winds and they came and they sat down again with their dog and we just you know sort of started chatting and they said well can we bring anything Do, do you need anything and i was like no i'm i'm good And they're, well can we bring you something for breakfast and um I was like, well, yogurt actually would be kind of nice with my oatmeal. And they came the next morning with some oatmeal and some fruit and hung out for another like hour or so. And as a mom and daughter, and they, they had a, a house in the area, but they lived in a suburb of Portland. They were Swedish and she talked about her Swedish family and, and, but also that they had lived in that area and had a a farm and um, her family, Swedish or Finnish, was German speaking in World War II and their neighbors were Japanese and when their neighbors disappeared to the camps was when their family stopped speaking German in public. But that they also then the church that they went to when their Japanese neighbors disappeared, they paid the taxes on their neighbor's farm which meant that their neighbors were some of the few Japanese people who were able to come home to their farms because the reason people lost the farms when they were in the camps was because they didn't they weren't able to pay the taxes on them. So this woman like I don't know how I heard this story of hers but but it was this strange thing where people told me stories people told me and the kind of stories that you don't usually tell you don't usually talk about so there was one guy who he, he told me all about his affair with his wife and how desperately in love he is with his wife but how hard things were for a while and he had this affair and then how he and his wife came back from it and they're patching things together and and things are starting to work again he told me the whole story and I think I think people talked to me because I was just passing through and mm-hmm. so they were never going to see me again and so there was this sort of anonymity that they got and so then there was this funny vulnerability of just all these people's stories that I got to hear
0: yeah you were the anonymous traveler passing by and they could they could say whatever they wanted
1: cuz they were never going to see me again that's right yeah it was it was really wild and so just you know these these stories that 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 people would tell me, and then going through California, all the you know paddlers from different places, I got sort of this glimpse into the paddling communities of um, all these different paddling communities because you know there's different clubs along the way, and it was just so yeah, the people it, it it was really cool, and it was not something that I expected at all, other than those three Airbnbs that I knew my mom had, but I had been told. By several people I know who who take expeditions fairly regularly, and they said, "Make sure that you have the time to meet people. You know, be be open to that. Let that happen. The people that you meet is going to be the best part." And it was so funny because I was like, "Okay, I, the, okay," and 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 I took that to heart, but I had no idea how that would happen. I was like, "I, I, I don't know."
0: And the and impact that they had on you seems to be uh, is, is pretty impressive.
1: i really, really interesting and really special. And I didn't know how to do it. Like I had been told, this is special and make sure that you leave room for it. And I didn't know how to, but, but then it just happens. It's like if you just are open to it and leave the space for it, then it happens on its own.
0: That's what makes the trip unique.
1: Oh, yeah. It's really, really, I mean... Yeah, so the people I met was was really incredible and probably one of my favorite pieces. And and just, you know, amazing to get to watch the geography change, like I told you, and then the people that you met. And then in the midst of all of this, to just be immersed in this incredible beauty, like it was a really, really special trip.
0: So tell us about some of your biggest challenges on the trip.
1: You know, one of the biggest challenges was
0: food. Surely getting enough food?
1: Yeah. So figuring out what food, and I spent a lot of time, I spent months dehydrating food and planning food and trying out different foods. Um And then I didn't know for certain how long the trip was going to be. My best guess was that it would be around three and a half months. And so I wanted to to have food for four months. And I I didn't know how easy or hard it was going to be to, you know, kind of refuel to have a resupply. It turns out it would have been really pretty easy to get much more frequent resupplies than I planned. But remember, I didn't think I was going to be seeing a lot of people. And so I thought a resupply was going to have to be about finding a, a post office or a marina or something where I could have my husband ship something to me and then I'd have to unpack it. I'd have to, if it was on post office, carry it from town to where I was camped on the beach and then carry the trash back out. And it just seemed like not something I wanted to do very often. So in planning for food for four months, I had it in Four resupply, three resupplies. I had had food for a month at a time. And when I started the expedition, I packed a month's worth of food into my boat. Um, So it was also about how to get that food as compact as possible and how to pack it in a way that's as compact as possible. And then also to make sure that I was getting enough calories and put a lot of work into trying to figure out how many calories I was going to need. But I didn't really know how long I'd be paddling um, and I w- what I was figuring was a hundred miles a week and that that would be basically 20 miles a day five days five days a week and I knew from other trips I'd done that that was that was something that that I could do and that I could do without a lot of trouble and then I figured I'd be able to do over a sustained amount of time and by the end of the trip my days were longer than that <laughs> um, but anyway, so so, I was trying to have enough food for for four months and to pack it at a month's worth of food at a time, but I didn't know how many hours a day for certain I'd be paddling, and I didn't really know how many calories I'd be burning per hour. And I found a website that, that tells you, oh, if you're canoeing, you're burning this many calories, but if you're whitewater canoeing, you're burning this many calories, and if you're kayaking, you're burning this many calories, but if you're doing this type of kayaking, you're burning you know, whatever. So uh, there were like five different types of paddling um, that told you how many calories you'd need to be burning per hour. And then it was like, well, I didn't know if I was going to be paddling six hours a day or 10 hours a day. So I did my best to figure out how many calories I was going to need per day. And then when I started sort of doing the math on the food that I was planning, I was just like, I'm not quite sure how to get that many calories. And then at the beginning of the trip, I couldn't eat that much. I just flat out couldn't eat that much. And there was there was one evening when, you know, I had made my dinner and I couldn't eat all of it. And I, I just kept putting food in my face. And I finally, I just couldn't eat anymore. And it was one of the times when I was on a really remote beach and, you know, I went and I poured the last of my lentils into the ocean and I stood there and literally out loud I said, I'm sorry, ocean, I'm sorry. Cause you know, I, I hate the idea of throwing my trash in the ocean. And you know, as lentils, it's it's food, it's biodegradable. It was gonna disappear really quickly, but that's not how I want to do things. Um and so I started decreasing the the portion size for dinners. And and actually the I think it was my second paddling day, I got to the end of the day and realized I hadn't eaten any food on the water. And I just said to myself, I said, oh, my gosh, I can't ever do that again on this trip ever. And so I made myself a little rule that I had to I had to eat something at least every two hours. And if it got to be two hours and I hadn't eaten, I had to eat something. And those first couple of weeks, it would get to be two hours. And the last thing I wanted to do was eat more food. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I kept my two-hour rule, but I wasn't necessarily eating you know I, and I had planned for multiple lunches on the water because I know that I, I can't do big meals on the water and I stuck to my every two hours I decreased the portion sizes for dinner because I just couldn't eat as much food as I had planned and then um before San Francisco i I started running a cat calorie deficit and certainly was running it before then, but it was the leg right before San Francisco that it kind of reared its head and I started to realize what was going on because I headed out onto the water and I had had an extra rest day with some of the people who had picked me up and I was ready to go each day on the water. And it was only, it was going to be like a six or seven day leg into San Francisco and it ended up being a four day leg and I texted the guy, Matt, who'd been giving me weather information, and I said, I'm going for uh the RV park at the north end of Bodega Bay, and if there's any possibility that someone can pick me up, that would be great. And this was with less than twenty four hour notice. And he told me later he was just like, I didn't know what had happened. I was like, Did you know, he was just like, Wow, did she have a a shark encounter? Did she like what's wrong? (laughs) Um, And what had happened was that every day on the water, by the time I'd been on the water two hours, maybe three, all I wanted was to be off the water because I was so tired. It was a leg. And and I didn't, it was a leg that didn't have any days that were really long, but all I wanted was to be off the water. And it didn't have any days when I had to make really hard decisions, but every decision, every decision and every judgment call felt overwhelming. It was a leg where I didn't have much in the way of wind, but all the wind that I had felt really tippy and, and really strong. And, and that, you know, I was weather cocking if it was from, from the beam and it, it, I couldn't paddle into it if it was a headwind. And if it was from a tail, if it was a tailwind, like it felt like it was going to capsize me and, and none of it was strong wind, but it just felt like I couldn't handle it. And I couldn't figure out what was going on because I I knew that it wasn't extreme wind. It wasn't hard judgment calls. It wasn't hard decisions. It wasn't long distances. And all of it was just really, really hard. And then there was a forecast coming in that was 30 knot winds and, and this and that. It was not far out from San Francisco and the coastline sort of curves to the east. And so those strong winds We're going to be farther out to the West. And Matt was saying this, I think you're going to be fine. I think you're going to be fine. And I was like, nope, (laughs) I'm pulling off and and I really want someone to pick me up. And it was then that then, and Matt found someone to pick me up. And I stayed with that person and his family for, I don't know, took like two rest days, maybe.
0: Wow. What an adventure Andrea's had so far. So you've just listened to the first half of my interview with Andrea Nepper about Dre's West Coast Adventure. Make sure you come on back, join us for the second half of the interview, where we will pick up with the paddling family who took her in, and we'll talk about the advice that she gained from that family, changes that she made along the way to uh, overcome the challenges that she's had so far, and then we'll also hear some of the advice that she has for others who are taking similar trips, and then hear what happens at the end. So, thanks for joining us for the first half of Dre's West Coast Adventure. We'll look forward to seeing you for the second half. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.